Good morning, Mosaic. Hey, thank you for that. So we're doing a series on Advent called The Fifth Gospel, Advent Through the Eyes of Isaiah. And today the theme is going to be chosenness, okay? But quick review, can someone please tell me what are, the, what are one of the three Advents of Jesus we learned about last week? Just shout it out. <laughs> Christmas, the birth of Jesus, that's one. The return of Jesus that we all anticipate and wait for. And three, the Holy Spirit arriving at Pentecost, the Spirit of Christ filling the church for the task that God has for the church. Yes, good job, great job. And Josh kicked things off with a great quote by Fleming Rutledge in her book, Advent, that says, Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light. So there's this tension in our culture of the consumerism around Christmas, um, yet there's an acknowledgement that something has happened. Our culture pauses and stops and, and has all these lights and all this stuff, but perhaps misses the true intention of the Christmas season. And Advent is, is really historically a time of mourning and yearning and longing, yet having hope, because the world is still dark. Christ has come once, but yet the world is still a dark place, and we await the second coming of Christ. And uh, we've already read part of this passage this morning, and it was touched on last week. In Isaiah 9, verse 2, um, and Isaiah, by the way, is just riddled with passage after passage and prophecy after prophecy pointing to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And here it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And if you read the news, I listen to NPR News now in the mornings. It's five minutes, and it's just, I don't think it's probably the best way to start my drive to Lee Elementary. It's, it's heavy. The world is a dark place. A lot of personal, heavy challenges, darkness, maybe some of you resonate with that. If you just think about darkness and what that means in your life right now, you might also be able to resonate with the people in Isaiah 9. And then this light that dawns, it says, for to us a child is born. And the hope of the nation of Israel rested on his shoulders. He was going to be this great ruler, uh, amazing leader. And yet at his first advent, his life was snuffed out. Shock, surprise, the despair, the darkness settles back in. Yet he rose again, but many, many, many have missed the impact and the, the, the implications and the reality of this child who was born that first Christmas, who rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father to return. So we're in this in-between time. And a lot of these prophecies, as Josh pointed out last week in Isaiah, as you read it, you might think, well, that prophecy seems to refer to Jesus, but it might have also talked about a time in the life of Israel before that, but it also seems like it's not fully fulfilled. If you're feeling that as you read it, there's a reason. All of that may be in those passages. These oracles these of, of the prophet Isaiah, are they, they can be multi-layered, kind of like a double or a triple entendre in a way where maybe some of it was fulfilled then in the person and work of Jesus, but yet some of it is yet to come. And so, uh, yes, Isaiah is pretty, uh, pretty in-depth, pretty complex that way. So we'll try to simplify it a little this morning. So in Isaiah, if you were to read it and study it, scholars have identified what they call four servant songs 
So these are also called servant poems or songs of the suffering servant. And they're found in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 52. So if you're looking for an Advent plan, maybe just take your family and, and read Isaiah 42, 1 to 4, first few verses of Isaiah 49, uh, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 52 to 53. All with, with some clarity, crystal clarity, pointing to the person and work of Jesus. And some scholars would add Isaiah 61 into that list as well. So what I want to do this morning is turn to Isaiah 42, and we will have it up here. And if you have a hard copy in front of you, bless your heart, and the lights are pretty low, so hopefully you can see it. And if I see a flash of an iPhone or something in front of me, I'll assume you're taking a deep dive into the scriptures, okay? Um, So we're going to turn to Isaiah 42, take a peek at these words written of Jesus 700 years before his birth. So think of our our country's 200 plus, 250 years old. These words were written 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And they're also reiterated in Matthew 12. So according to the gospel writers, we know this is in reference to Jesus Christ whom we celebrate at Christmas. So we turn to Isaiah 42 verse 1. And it says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom I delight. Pause. Go back a slide if you don't mind. Thank you. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we get to look at your scriptures who, who all, are all about your son Jesus Christ and his work in history and how that impacts our lives in our own lived histories has everything to do with what we're experiencing today, will experience tomorrow, have experienced yesterday, and will experience. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what it means that Jesus is your chosen one and how we fit into that as well. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. So the question this morning, if if you could change places with anyone in the world, who would it be and why? If you know me well, you might know that I will say LeBron James, okay? LeBron James, yes, the chosen one. Do you guys remember this kid, the kid from Akron, right? The hope of the NBA rests upon his shoulders. Uh, The guy yesterday happened to win the very first, I'm the only one that cares about LeBron, but you guys know I I try to to fit in a little little bit of LeBron analogy as I'm able Yesterday, he led the Lakers to win the very first in-season tournament, scored half a million dollars for all of his teammates who were lesser paid than him. The king didn't need the money. The king had all the accolades, but yet he cared about dispersing the blessings to the others, right? You see, this, this analogy is actually pretty rich. But he came out of high school with, on the Sports Illustrated cover with this, the chosen one. Kid from Akron, 17 years old, Sports Illustrated hits the press. Talk about pressure. This is sort of like his prophetic material, if you will. And um, don't worry, I'm not going to toe-dangle with heresy or anything like that. Just let let the analogy hit you. Of course, people are asking, is LeBron James overrated? But he was chosen. Now, if LeBron, he took that, he's like, I'm the chosen one, I'm amazing, Uh, All of America knows I'm the man. And then in the first year, he's injured. First year, he flops. Well, 
bad analogy because LeBron is known to flop a lot. But you know what I mean. He, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't pan out. He's in the NBA for a handful of years, plays the G League, and he's out. He has not lived up to this moniker, the chosen one. Because with this chosenness comes great responsibility and a task at hand and purpose. Chosenness is not just about being identified as a special person, as a special people, as a special group. It is about the task at hand, the mission to be accomplished, okay? And LeBron, by the way, he has lived up to it. What this man is doing on the basketball court at age 38, almost 39, is amazing. I watch it. I watch the highlights. I'm 42 years old myself. Wow. So I followed him coming out of high school, and he, he truly is the chosen one. Now, has he supplanted MJ? That's a debate for another day. I'll take you on that one. Okay, enough about LeBron. Let's just think about chosenness. When you're chosen for something or you choose someone, your name's in the pool of candidates for a job, a job that you really want to get after, right? A job you really, really want, and you're chosen. It doesn't stop there. It's not just, hey, we think this guy is special. Let's hire him, and then he can just do whatever he wants. No, you're chosen for a purpose. When we choose a president, it's not just about, okay, they have the status. We call them the president. No, we choose them for a purpose. And if they don't live up to that purpose and fulfill that purpose and steward their chosenness, we're upset. We want them out of there, right? When you're chosen for a team, same thing. You're chosen to produce something, the desired results of being selected or chosen. Same, when you choose a spouse, it's not just celebrate the wedding day, call yourself husband and wife, and move on. No, you have just signed off on a mission, a task, a journey, that together your life would bear fruit in some way. So here in Isaiah 42, this first servant song, we learn of Jesus that he is the chosen one. Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. So yes, God delights in his son. That, that was clear from eternity past. But here God is saying, God the Father is saying, Jesus is my chosen one. This has to do with his purpose on this planet, his mission. And what is his mission? What is his purpose? What was he chosen to do that only he uniquely could do? The passage goes on. The father says of the son, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Has that accomplished yet? I don't know. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now think about Jesus, the man of sorrows, he is called uh, in that fourth suffering servant's um, servant song in Isaiah 52 to 53. Jesus could empathize with the down and out, the marginalized, the, the, the hurting, the broken, fill in the brink, the bruised reeds, the smoldering wicks of the world. Because in Isaiah 53... <laughs> We read of him, verses 2 and 3. He grew up 
before him, before God the Father, like a tender shoot himself, like a root out of dry ground. Listen to this description of the chosen one, Jesus Christ. Not like a description of the chosen ones we would choose, like LeBron. LeBron does not fit this description, but Jesus does. He He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So this is good news. If you feel like maybe you've been marginalized, you've been down and out, you're hurting, maybe you feel fragile uh, because Jesus can empathize with you and he is so tender and so gentle. Um, Isaiah 42 goes on to describe more of the purpose of Jesus, the chosen one. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged. Even if discouragement comes, he will not be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. In the Matthew... um, Uh, The Matthew reference to this, the last line says, In his name, the nations will put their hope. In the name of Jesus, the nations will put their hope. This little uh, Jewish boy who was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem under the watchful eye of King Herod, if you read that story, King Herod slaughtered all the boys two years and younger, to try to snuff out the life of this little, little, little boy, Jesus. He fled to Egypt. He was a refugee, came out of Egypt, settled in Nazareth for a time, which is considered backwoods. You know, pick your small town USA. That's where, where this little boy was from. And yet here we read, in his name, the nations will put their hope. Why would the nations put their hope in the teaching and the name of this little Jewish boy who Isaiah spoke of 2,700 years ago. Think about that question. Jesus was not born into a vacuum as Almighty King, doing his thing outside the context of the history of the world. He was not some sort of myth or legend merely, but rather his birth was a historical event. He's born into a family and a storyline already set in motion. He was born into the nation of Israel that we learn is God's chosen people. And how does that idea hit you this morning? Israel is God's chosen people. When we hear the news, we read the news, we think about history that's occurred between when those words were spoken, fast forward to the 21st century, Israel is God's chosen people. God chose Israel alone from all the nations. The whole nation was chosen. Their task to prepare the way for this chosen one to bless the world and then to arise and shine with him. So I'm going to read the description of the chosenness of the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 7. And I just want you to uh, allow the confusion, sort of uh, just these words to kind of hit you. This is in in Deuteronomy, okay? Deuteronomy 7. 
And you might feel a little sting of like, okay, um, the nation of Israel is chosen. Does that mean I'm not? And you might even think about how some begin to conflate the nation of America with the nation of Israel and say, well, we're Americans, so we have to be the greatest. So somehow we need to tether ourselves to this chosen. So just let those things hit you. This is Deuteronomy 7. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Isn't that kind of what grace is? They haven't, you haven't accomplished anything. You've not done anything. Yet I choose you. I choose you. Sounds and feels and smells like grace there. Deuteronomy 7, 8 goes on. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, his relationship specifically with Abraham and the other fathers of the faith, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the story brags on God who does the choosing. And yet, because you are chosen... God says, therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. So the chosenness is not that you would feel high and mighty. We are special. That means you are not. That is not ever the intention of God choosing a person or a people. There is a mission at hand. You are to obey my commands, decrees, and laws I give you. Summarized, love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And anytime you try to draw boundaries around what neighbor means or how that's defined, God, the gospel, the person and work of Jesus will blow up those categories. In fact, Jesus said, you heard it said, um, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, Love your enemy, right? So their chosenness came with great, great responsibility. We read in Psalm 67, Psalm of David, who himself foreshadowed King Jesus, King David who sat on the throne of the nation of Israel, the second king. He says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. We want the blessing of God. But King David understood why. Why do we want the blessing of God? So that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Sounds just like Mosaic's um, mission, right? Uniting people in the way of Jesus. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. It goes on in verse 4. May the nations be glad And sing for joy. When the nations see the prosperity of Israel, it should result in rejoicing and joy. Why? Because they're living up to their chosen status, which is to love God, love neighbor as yourself. That's how it's supposed to be. Right? When people see uh, LeBron James win win the in-season tournament, even if they rode the bench, they get the blessings of his accomplishments, the 500K. Sorry to throw that in there. I know you guys aren't hitting that LeBron analogy. 
So may the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so all the ends of the earth will fear him. And again, fear here is the beginning of knowledge, right? That's, this is a, a healthy, positive awe in, in light of the creator. So Israel is chosen by God to receive a blessing, but not to sit on that blessing and bask in their chosenness, but rather they're chosen by God to receive blessings so that they may be a blessing to others, specifically so they can connect the nations to the creator God so all of humanity can be restored back into the family of God. I want to take this a little bit deeper here and look at a specific example in Scripture that has everything to do with what we hear in the news these days, especially coming out of the Middle East, but other parts of the world as well. I want to look briefly at the story of Ishmael and Isaac. Probably not your Advent sermon you were expecting, right? Um, All right, Genesis 17. This is verses 18 to 21. Just a little background story here. So Father Abraham was chosen. You know, Abram was chosen and told to go to an unknown land. He followed God. He's the man of faith. His wife Sarah is there. They're promised a descendant with whom God will make a covenant. The dude is getting old. His wife's getting old. They kind of rush things, and Sarah concocts this really messed up plan, gives Abram her maidservant, and says, why don't you produce our heir through her? Yes, very, very messed up situation. A lot of abuse happening there. Hagar happens to be um, an Egyptian maidservant. And uh, in the midst of all that family dysfunction, which the scriptures can be described really as just a story of a family dysfunction and God making the family right again. In the midst of all that, God is an expert at making beautiful things come out of brokenness and messed up situations that humans cause. So here we read, Abraham says to God, verse 18, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Again, he's tired. Sarah's tired. They're tired of trying to produce an heir. It's not working for them. So he says, here's Ishmael. Yes, maybe we messed up. I, I didn't have your wisdom. But just... Do the covenant, the blessing through Ishmael, please. Listen to what God says. Yes. Yes to what? Yes, Ishmael will live under my blessing. But your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. And it's with Isaac that I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Isaac will be the chosen one, yet I will bless Ishmael. And just to catch you up without a lot of background, if you follow the lineage and the story of Ishmael, that is where we get the people, the the Arab people and the Islamic world, most of the Islamic world will trace their lineage and roots back to Ishmael, either through ancestry or by proximity to the religion of Islam. So that's what we're talking about. 
Okay, my one long quote for the morning. This is from Jonathan E. Culver, Ph.D., in, in his paper that he wrote called The Ishmael Promises and Contextualization Among Muslims. Listen to this. My thesis is that there is a significant element of divine involvement in the remote origins of Islam. This, this might put you on edge just a little, but just follow with me. Genesis 17.20, which we just read, along with Genesis 21.20, which is a story where Sarah says, get Hagar and Ishmael out of here, and they kick them out. And you read about God's kindness and tenderness with Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis 21. This characterized this involvement as a special kind of common grace, divine providence, granted to the other seed of Abraham. And I just read that to you, the description. Yes, I will bless Ishmael. Isaac, though, is my chosen one. It is divine providence which has sustained the rise of Ishmael's descendants, culminating in the worldwide Muslim community. Which, by the way, in Manhattan, Kansas, we have a a thriving Islamic center. We have refugees from Afghanistan. We've had students from Saudi. I've met students from Libya. The Islamic world is, is our neighbors in our backyard and delightful people to get to know and to love our neighbors. God graciously blessed Ishmael out of respect for Abraham's concerns for his firstborn. Through this blessing, he will glorify his name in this age and in the eschatological age to come. Let me break that down just a little bit. We will see the name of God glorified in the Islamic world, even now and in the age to come. And we have a role in that. And as we will learn, Isaac and his people have a role in that glorifying of the name of God. Here's a short quote to break this down. From Jonathan Culver, Isaac receives the covenant. Ishmael is promised a blessing. Isaac and his descendants are destined to be the agents of God's mission, whereas Ishmael and his descendants are destined to be unique recipients of God's mission. With chosenness comes great responsibility. It is through those who are chosen that the the knowledge of God flows to all the others. And that is the blessing that is to be poured out. Let's think of this question. Why else would the Magi from the East show up to worship a Jewish baby born into a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes? Why would these, they're likely Ishmaelites, Arabs, risk travel into Israel under the watchful eye of King Herod, who we've already talked about, putting themselves at risk and danger to worship this Jewish boy. Why would that happen? And read in Matthew 2.11, just one verse, on coming to the house, it's a description of the Magi, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which is just a myrrh is what you prepare uh, bodies for burial. They're foreshadowing the, the life and death of this baby Jesus. 
Now you might ask, okay, well, how are we, how are we surmising that these are descendants of, of Ishmael? Turn back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. Sounds a lot like Isaiah 9. Thick darkness over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light. Who's the light of the world? For unto us the sun is born and kings to the brightness of your dawn. It goes on, verse 4, lift up your eyes. Look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar. Your daughters carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb, swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. The riches of the nations will come. Here it is, verse 6. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba, South Arabia, will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you, accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. But I thought it was in a manger, right? But who was in the manger? The temple, Christ himself. The body of Christ is the temple of God now. This is, this is, this is awesome, right? People miss this. People miss this. Chosenness is not that we just sit there and bask in being special. It is that we are chosen for a purpose to invite the nations to relationship with God Almighty. So if you read, I know we're doing a deep dive on Bible study, but Kedar's flocks, Naboth, in Genesis 25, we read of the account of the family line of, of Abraham's son Ishmael, and it says, these are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of their birth, Neboath, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, and so on and so forth. We don't have a lot of the history of Ishmael because this is a story about God's plan of salvation for the world through the nation of Israel and the offspring, the seed that was born, Jewish boy Jesus. But we have enough in there to see the purpose of God. So has God forgotten Ishmael? No. Has God forgotten the little girls still in Afghanistan under the rule of the Taliban? No. Has God forgotten the Palestinians? No. Has he forgotten the Sudanese, the Congolese, all of those who don't make the news because they're not important enough for U.S. political affairs? He has not forgotten. Has he forgotten you? Has he forgotten me? No. And he has a plan to go after all of those people with the tenderness, the kindness of Jesus Christ who will not snuff out a smoldering wick or, or break a bruised reed. So despite the failings of, of Israel quite often, a lot of the Old Testament is just a reading of what should be and what wasn't and how God continues to work his plan. We learn that not only is Jesus Christ chosen, but we, the church, are chosen. You, if you believe in Jesus, if you've put your faith in Christ, you are chosen 
because you are in him. You share in his chosenness. Listen to this in Ephesians 1, verse 4. For God chose us in Christ. It's like we're on his team. When we join his team, we share in the ring, we share in the prize. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. He predestined. He, this was his plan from the beginning, that when we put our faith in Christ, we are then adopted to sonship through Christ. And this is part of his good pleasure and will. And we read later in Ephesians uh, verse 3, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 4. And Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he is unveiling to them what the good news is really all about and why it's new. He says, in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This one we read about who was written about 2,700 years ago, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. This is news. It is good news. It goes on in verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What in the world does that mean? It means that God's wisdom his, his uh, approach to the world of grace and mercy, mercy will be on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Think the cosmic forces of evil will see what has occurred in this suffering servant, his resurrection, and his spirit in the people of God, not just Israel now. All Gentiles are available. And they will see his eternal purpose. And he, he, he duped them, he tricked them. They did not see this coming. And we turn a few um, letters later in 1 Peter, verse 2. As you come to him, the living stone, who was rejected by humans but chosen by God, we read about that in Isaiah 53, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now we're learning not only are we part of the people of God, but we're priests as well, came from a specific uh, lineage um, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we also share as priests, those who represent God to the people, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. A few verses later, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And yes, feel his delight on you. You are special. It's like when you have two kids, right? Which one do you love more? You love them both. They're both special. They both can feel that they are special, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And this is why Paul in Romans 10 references Isaiah 52 where it says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings. If you think about a war-torn land, 
experiencing death and destruction, and someone shows up ready to make the wrongs right and to bring peace, to bring water, to bring food, those feet are beautiful. That's how our feet should look to this watching world, this hurting world, this broken world, to one another even. That's why we sing, go tell it on the mountains that Christ is born. So just a couple quick applications and then one question. I invite you to experience God's delight in you. He says he was God's, uh, he was his chosen servant in whom he delighted. So God isn't just trying to use the chosen person to do his bidding. He has a real relationship. He delights in you, each and every one of you, and each and every person you relate to. And so I call, I invite you this morning to experience that. Just sit in that delight that God has over you. And then to choose to respond to your chosenness to bear witness to this baby Jesus in the world. So how will you unite people in the way of Jesus? What bruised reed will you kindly restore? What smoldering wick will you gently breathe back into flame? Maybe a person or two comes to mind. Who will you share this good news with? And our, la- our question, what will you do with the good news of Advent this morning? So I invite the worship team to come up as we, we will move towards the Lord's Supper together. And I want to give you one last picture I threw a lot of scripture out here. One last passage. A picture of a future Christmas party, if you will. Not focused on consumerism, as we experience, but rather focused on the life of Jesus being shared by those who currently live in hostility. So this is Isaiah 19, and some call it the Isaiah 19 Highway. This is a prophecy that we look forward to and that we can be a part of seeing come to fulfillment. It says, In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. That's north. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. Remember Hagar, the maidservant from Egypt? Remember Assyria who conquered part of Israel? In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork. It's also a description of us, you know, the mosaic of God. In Israel, my inheritance. What an awesome day. We get to be a part of being bearers of good news to those people, too. So I invite you to stand together with us as we pray. Thank you for listening to the Mosaic Church podcast. For more teachings, resources, and other news, please visit mosaicmhk.com.